Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Joey Sturge's Tones. Creating unique audio tools for musicians and producers everywhere. Unleash your creativity with Joey Sturge's Tones. Visit joeysturgestones.com for more info. And now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joe Wanasek, and A.L. Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. I am A.L. Levy. With me as co-hosts today are... The very, very honorable Finn McKenty, who you guys probably know from previous podcasts, because uh, he's already been on here twice. Uh, if you don't know him from that, you should. He helps run the marketing for URM and Nail the Mix, as well as plenty of other amazing companies like Horizon Pedals and works for a bunch of really awesome bands. And I've known him for a long time. He also ran the audio channel Creative Live. You should listen to everything he says. And with us is also Mr. Dan Suriv, who is the VP of Mercenary Management, one of the smartest people I know in the music industry. Known him for a few years now and have watched him just kind of climb and climb like smart people do. So you should listen to everything he has to say. Welcome, Dan. How are you doing? Hey, guys. Nice to have you here. Nice to have both of you here. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So let's just jump right into it, because I know that uh, we don't have five hours to... Uh, to do all this. I, I wanted to talk to you guys about things that artists and producers should think about doing besides just their art. So I know that at Mercenary, you guys handle Zach Wild, and Zach does all kinds of stuff besides just be the guitar god that he is. There's coffee, there's amps, there's straps, there's all kinds of stuff. I think I even saw bobblehead dolls. And Finn, I know that you work with artists like uh, like Misha Mansour, who just put out his Horizon Pedals line. So these guys are examples of two really well-known guitar players who musically are super respected but are making the most of their careers by uh going beyond just their playing so let's jump in do you guys think that that's something that artists and producers in 2017 have to do uh yeah you know what i think that's probably how all artists are going to start making their living you know maybe 5 10 15 years down the line there's only so far you can get with just being a musician and the income opportunities are really closing in or not closing in, but they're dwindling, I suppose. Um, there's just not many opportunities out there. So what you need to do is, at least in Zach Wilde's case, we took his you know fame and his name power and we were able to channel that into products that his fans love. You know, Zach is synonymous with guitars and guitar playing, so it's only natural that he would progress into having a guitar company and amps and guitar accessories. And why is that better than just doing it the traditional way, like a signature line through Gibson? More money. <laughs> Well, no, that's good. That's got to be said. Right. And I mean, you know, I guess I, guess I should say for the listeners, um, I, like I'm pretty blunt and uh, honest and straightforward with most of my answers, um, regardless of how popular or unpopular the, what I say is. So, you know, with doing your own line versus a signature model, um, the typical deal with a signature model gives you a very, very small royalty. And I think it's something like four to six percent on the high end. Um, Ouch. Yeah, it's it's painful. So you're not really doing anything, but you're contractually obligated to 
push sales and you are responsible for the sales of your uh, your signature line with creating your own company you reap more of the benefits and you know the the payout is much much higher you know wild audio is something that Zach will eventually be able to retire on versus his Gibson signature line that he was doing years ago which you know was a good paycheck but it just it, it wasn't enough wild audio is comparable to the business black label society is doing that's pretty impressive actually now what about for a guy who just got an endorsement deal it's not like uh it's not like some kid in a new band can just go make their own guitar company or can they that's a that's a good question um well it's zach wild is a strange case since you know he came in with already a lot of influence and you know i guess power um he has he had the money to spend and the money to invest and we were able to get investors behind it no problem but that's because he's been in the business for 30 years if you're a 19 year old kid and you know your band just got signed and you know ivan as or esp or someone offers you a sponsorship deal then that's probably the right move for you at that time you know when you're 19 and you're starting to go on tour your main concern is you need to be able to perform when you're out on the road, you know, you need those guitars and you probably can't afford, you know, a 600 or a thousand dollar guitar. So, you know, with age and with popularity, your priorities start to shift. But yeah, you know, should someone like Misha Mansour, should he look into making his own line of guitars and whatever else? Yeah, absolutely. You know, he's, he's getting to that point. And if he's not at that point or any guitar player isn't at that point, their goal should be to get there. I think he's at that point. Finn, what do you think? You would know better than us. If if Misha was a, said, I want to start a guitar company, you would probably say, do it, right? Yeah, that would be like, um, that would be like, imagine you had a dump truck full of cash and <laughs> someone, someone gave you the keys to that dump truck. That's what it would be like if Misha started a guitar company. Um, <laughs> uh, nice, nice way to put it. Yes, uh, yeah. So, for anybody who doesn't know, uh, one of the ventures. That, so, the, the periphery guys are, you know, you know, some of the smartest guys in the game and are, are really great at monetizing their following. And they're involved in a whole bunch of ventures, two of which I help them with. Uh, Get good drums is one, which listeners of this podcast are probably familiar with. It's a virtual drum library. And let me interrupt you real quick. Subscribers for Nail the Mix who are listening to this, if you go to your bonuses section, you have $20 off Get Good Drums. There's a bonus code right there for you. So, uh, yeah, one yes. of the perks of being subscribed to Nail the Mix. Sorry, go so on. Definitely take advantage of that. Yeah, so so uh, Get Good Drums is Nolly, Matt, and Misha from Periphery creating, and, and Dez from Good Tiger have partnered to put out this virtual drum library, which has been doing incredible business. I won't share the number, but if you guys saw the gross, you would faint. And then the the other thing that they're involved with, which I've been helping with, is a company called Horizon Devices. That is Misha plus a couple guys from Wired Guitarist who have partnered with MXR to make a uh, an overdrive pedal called Precision Drive, which is kind of it comes with like a, a really tight gate and some other and some other features that are really like 
geared towards that like super tight modern metal sound and that thing also has just been like flying off the shelves um and so yeah i would say like if you are a musician of their caliber you would be insane not to pursue something like that and yeah i mean i totally agree with with dan that you know that's going to be the way that people like them make their well that that's the way they make their living now but it's going to be increasingly true you know 5 10 15 years from now i do want to uh say one thing though which since we uh, thought about this podcast like really has to be said that frames all this and if you guys disagree feel free to uh to tell me but i i feel like there's a thing where bands and producers uh but i'd say especially bands think way too much about marketing and business and strategy and stuff way too early and like this may sound weird coming from me since I'm like a business and marketing guy but the reason that people like Zach and Periphery and Jason Richardson and stuff like that are able to or Joey for that matter you and Joey you know are able to do all these things is because all you guys are really really fucking good at what you do and that is the thing that unlocks all these opportunities is you've got to be super fucking badass at your craft that is what opens the door to all these other things so it's great that people are thinking about this stuff and it's great that bands you know are thinking about the business but if you aren't a badass at your actual craft whether that's playing guitar or writing songs or mixing or whatever then you're not ready to think about this shit I completely agree. And let me just add, since you mentioned me and Joey, that basically as producers, and I am a former musician too, but as producers, we're also doing our own version of what Zach is doing or Misha by doing Nail the Mix and URM Academy and then Joey Sturgis Tones and Drum Forge and and even more recently, my Metal Beard Club. This is me, my version or our version of doing that exact same thing of using what we've got to uh, spread our wings. And And the reason why people were interested in it is because you guys did like masterful fucking work when you were playing in bands and, you know, producing albums and stuff like that. That's, that's the key to all these things. So yeah, it wouldn't have worked otherwise. Yeah. If you're some random person off the street, whose craft is only mediocre, these things would have failed. Absolutely. I mean, when you talk about Zach Wilde, you're talking about a guitar god. Yeah, I mean, he's absolute one of, legend. Yeah, and Misha will be the next version of that. And by the way, for anybody who listening who's listening that you know thinks Misha isn't a good guitarist, feel free to pick up his rig anytime and see if you sound like him. And I think you'll, <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll quickly understand that he might be a little bit better than you think. <laughs> that's a, that's a great point. I think that. One thing that people should think about is they should learn about marketing along the way of getting good, but they shouldn't put that before their actual craft at the beginning. They should have their eye towards the future, though. So we were talking about earlier about the 19-year-old guitar player who's getting his first free guitars. You know, probably the first time in his life that he has good quality guitars that he can play. And um, that's great. He should be thinking that, okay, if things keep going right five years down the line, 
I want to have my own guitar company yeah. or something like that, but not, uh, okay, this is nice. Within a year, I'm going to have my own guitar company before I'm even established as a name. I mean, you could you could start your own company at the age of 20, and it might work. You know, you might be that one in a million kind of person that can pull it off. But there, there's another thing I want to mention that I think both you and Dan uh, are, uh, are really good at is that you don't have to do all this stuff yourself. And in fact, you shouldn't like you should you should partner with other people on this stuff because running a business is hard and there are a lot of operational elements to it that you don't know about no matter how good you are at your craft and you should partner with other people who will help you figure that part out and like Dan you've been doing that for a lot of your artists and maybe you can talk about kind of how that relationship works uh, absolutely I mean you know just like uh, management is not a one person not a one person game or one person show either is building a business around an artist. Um, you know, again, using the, the Zach example with Wild Audio, you know, we knew what we wanted and Zach had this game plan and this vision, but ultimately we went to Schechter who, do, you know, they do this all day, every day, and this is, they specialize in manufacturing and distributing guitars, and we partnered with them to make it happen. And, you know, you mentioned the bobblehead dolls earlier. We did that through a global merchandising company called Araka. And it really is just finding the right synergy between groups of people and finding that correct partner that, you know, can make the dream a reality. You know, if we're talking about a 20-year-old guitar player, maybe he's onto something. Maybe he has, you know, he invented a piece of technology that is going to revolutionize guitar playing or, you know, whatever. But... He himself probably doesn't have the means to mass manufacture this and get it out there. So, you know, yeah, he may, he or she will probably end up partnering with a larger company or a tech firm, whatever, to make it happen. There's nothing wrong with that, and that's what most people do. It's, it's no different than a band partnering with a record label for a release. I mean, like one very simple example of a thing that nobody thinks about is shipping like fulfilling orders shipping stuff out and dealing with customer service reply uh, inquiries like those are two full-time jobs and if you want to take that on then be my guest but i think it's a lot smarter if you're an artist to focus on what you're great at which is you know being a, a public personality and being able to capture people's attention and let somebody else answer the customer service emails and ship the orders out. Let me tell you about that. So first of all, I've got two things to say. One is I've known lots of bands who do the crowdfunding thing who get bit in the ass because they think it's really, really cool to make tens of thousands of dollars. But then six months later, when they have to deliver all of the prize packages and ship them, they get into a lot of trouble because they're not used to fulfilling orders and doing customer right. service. And, uh, you know, why is this three months later? And they get all these emails and how they don't know how to deal with it. And then people shit talk them online and they look like scammers when in reality they're not scammers. They're just musicians who don't know how to do customer service or fulfill orders and uh, it makes them look bad so it's very important that you get people who actually do know how to do these things and at URM Academy Nail the Mix as soon as customer service became more than two or three emails a day we got someone it started at 10 hours a month and those of you listening, say hi to Amrish Mahabir. We love him. Started at 10 hours a month, then it went to 25 hours a month, and now it's full-time. 
And uh, we're probably going to have to add a second person soon because there's no way there's no way to do this stuff yourself. You got to have a dedicated person. The moment your business starts growing, you have to have someone who is good at it, enjoys it, and can put in the time to do it. Or you're going to fall behind, and people will talk shit about you on the internet and you'll want to die. I want Dan to uh, add something to this, which is, uh, I know a question that comes up a lot is, so we, we just told people that it's important to partner with people to, you know, essentially outsource things that are outside of your comfort zone. On the other hand, a lot of bands or producers look for a manager very early on in their career. And Dan, maybe you can tell people when is appropriate to look for a manager and, and when is too soon or agent or whatever other support people? Well, you know, every band has different needs and so does every, you know, manager, booking agency and whatever. And everyone's at different points in their career. Generally, I would tell, you know, musicians that if you're not, if you're not at that point where the business needs or the business workload is so overwhelming that it's interfering with the creative workload, then you probably don't need a manager. You know, you're just not there yet. Yeah, there's going to be some people that will want to take it on, but it's more often than not, it's just going to turn into them begging for favors. And if they're not able to deliver on those favors, then you know your career kind of gets stagnant and it's not really worth the hassle. The the most successful management relationships I've had have been bands that got themselves to that point to where the business was the business end of it was just so much work that it was interfering with the creative side. Black Veil Brides was already a fully functional business before we ever picked them up. For the listeners, before Black Veil Brides ever had uh, a merchandising deal, a record contract, before they ever went on tour, they had a music video with millions and millions of views, and they were selling out every show locally in the Ohio, Michigan, and Kentucky area. And that's really what I would look for for a client I'd be interested in taking on, especially at, at the beginning stages of the band, is someone with that upward momentum and a band who's business is really turning into an actual long-term business versus, you know, some band that may have a cool song or two, but really needs you to pull them up. And those stories of a manager coming in and getting you on all these tours and, uh, you know, you breaking out of nowhere, that's just not realistic. That's maybe one in a million. There's many more horror stories of it's falling apart and the band's breaking up. Well, not to mention when a band is really small, typically the level of manager that they can attract isn't the kind of manager who can really do anything for them anyways. Like, and it, so, I mean, if a local band somehow is lucky enough to get with a real manager, that's cool. And then that manager, like, say that somehow a local band convinces you guys or Outer Loop or whoever to take them on, and you guys have to beg to get them on tour. That's that's uh, one scenario. But more likely, they're going to get with a local yokel manager who literally can't do shit for them. And so they're going to have to pay them out of pocket a percentage of what the hundred bucks yeah. they made off of that local show makes no sense so that that tees up another thing that i think is important for people to think about in regards to 
working with other people, partners, or, you know, really anybody that you approach, you, before you even think about contacting them, you have to ask yourself, what's in it for this person? Like, so for example, like when bands just randomly ask some blog to post about them, why would that blog be interested in posting about your band? Or when, you know, when you approach a manager, hey, Dan, do you want to work with us? Why would I want to work with you? What's in it for me? And that's not like, and that's not to say that everyone looks at it, you know, from a selfish, like calculating perspective, but just at the end of the day, we only have so many hours in the day and Dan can't work with every band under the plant, under the sun, no matter how much he likes them, you know, this is his job and he can't work with everyone. And so I think it's super important to think about that. And, you know, with like, with Nail the Mix, you guys are able to work with some super high caliber people. And some of those are people that you already knew. And so you can, I don't want to say call in a favor, but you know, it's easier to do with somebody that you already know. But a lot of these people I know that you didn't have a relationship before, and yet you were able to get them to say yes by coming to them with a deal that, you know, clearly made sense from their perspective. So the takeaway to me, again, is like, before you think about approaching anybody, ask yourself, okay, what's in it for them? Put yourselves in the shoes of the person across the table or on the other end of the phone and go, why would they say yes to this? And let me point out that the first six months of Nail the Mix, we were either doing unsigned artists or smaller artists that we had worked with personally. We didn't have a guest on for the first six months um, with like a bigger signed band because we didn't feel like we had the the audience yet or the structure to where we could offer a well-known producer something valuable. Now we do. Now we've had a lot of bigger artists and a lot of bigger producers and we have a large audience and we know that when we approach a producer to do Nail the Mix, that they're going to get a lot of exposure for this, that it's going to be good for them. It's going to be great for us, and it's going to be great for them. It's going to be great for everybody. Um, But we didn't even think about doing that until it was built up to a certain point. And that actually, I want to take this back to something that we were touching on earlier, but uh, I want to make sure I don't forget to bring this up. Dan, you guys work with Goat Whore and have been working with Goat Whore for a long time. The reason I'm bringing them up is because we've been talking about like Periphery and the art, the producers that Nail the Mix works with or Zach Wilde or Blackville Brides, and these are all big-time artists. And Goat Whore, while successful in their niche, are not a huge band, but they've managed to just keep in the game for a long-ass time now. And I know because I know them and because I've toured with them many times, that their merch game is super strong and that that's what keeps them keeps them going is their relentless tour schedule, but also their incredible merch. And uh, that incredible merch is something that I've seen lots of people who aren't even fans of the band wearing. It's that good that people just wear it because it's cool. And so that's a good example of you don't need to be a Zach Wild in order to start your side business or your spin-off business. You just need to have a good idea or a good quality product. Of course, if Goat Whore were the size of Demo Borgir, uh, maybe their merch business would be three times the size it is now or something like that. But still, they are still going and going strong. And uh, a lot of it has to do with that merch game. Or am I wrong? No, you're absolutely correct. Um, it's it's great that you brought up the merch game because not many people realize 
I mean, Goat Whore is just fantastic at marketing themselves. They're the epitome of, of a band that focuses on one or two amazing designs that everybody wants to buy versus having 20 mediocre designs that nobody, not many people would want to wear on a T-shirt. You know, they're uh, Apocalyptic Havoc T-shirt, the one that says, who needs a god when you've got Satan on the back? Yes. I see that everywhere. And, and like you said, with people that don't even know that Goat Whore is a band, and they're just that good. And there's a, an element of Alex exclusivity to their merch since they don't have a retail deal there's you know oh they don't they don't amazing you, most of the time you can't even find goat horn merch online unless you're buying it used or uh through the metal blade store which only has a handful of designs goat is very unique in that they turn their shows into a real experience and People that may have never heard of that band, they walk away as diehard fans. And, and you know, that's not to say Goat Whore is just a merch band. If you listen to their progression over the years, each they're better with every single album. You know, um, they get stellar reviews across the board. And they're road warriors. It's some of the hardest working guys I've ever met. They're a great band. And they definitely always, uh, they were a huge influence for my band when we were touring on how to do things professionally and how to sound good even their tone is incredible but to me the i feel like without that without that merch it would probably be really really hard to keep going in that genre i mean absolutely that um you know there's there's only so many people that can show up to you know that type of extreme metal show. So yeah, you know that that's how they pay their bills is having cool merch. But then it really pays off, you know, and it's always high quality. And if we want to talk about weird merch, they had some really awesome hot sauce about a year ago. That uh, you know, we still get a ton of requests for on their Facebook page. But I mean, that just goes to show again, though, you don't need to be the size of Zach Wild to tap into these types of ideas. Absolutely not. You just need to have that. You just need to have a cool idea and make sure it's actually cool, not just what you think is cool. And then figure out a way to uh, get people to to uh, to know that it exists and then price it properly. And that's a whole other a whole other situation. Finn question for you that I have is when you decide to take on something as far as helping to market it what what are you looking for because so we asked Dan kind of what he's looking for what are you looking for when you say yes well I have uh, a three-part formula for deciding whether I want to be part of anything and so I think of it as like a, a triangle. There are three points on the triangle, which is good paycheck, cool people, and cool project. And anything needs to have at least two of those things in order for me to say yes to it. And and that's because, you know, fortunately, I, I you know, don't have to worry about money so much. At a certain point in my career, I would have taken something just for the money because I had to, to pay the rent. And, you know, I know a lot of people are probably in that same position. So uh, there is a time in which, you, you know, you got to do what you got to do. But in general, I look for two of at least two of those three things. And then, you know, fortunately, I've been able to, you know, lately work on stuff where all three of those things are true, which is amazing. You know, but that's because, it, you know, I've been doing this stuff for, you know, 15 years now. And I've, 
you know, slowly worked my way uh, up to that point. But that's how I look at it. And that's how I would encourage anyone else to look at it too. And uh, in particular, you know, I know in a lot of creative fields, there's a real bias against doing free work, you know, and if you do anything for free, like a test mix or a, you know, a, a, a design, a concept for something without getting paid, you know, people will come out of the woodwork and say, you're devaluing the industry and rah, rah, rah. And uh, first of all, I don't agree with the fact that they're devaluing it. But aside from that, so look at it this way. If a local band who you do not know asks you to do a test mix, run it through through that, that triangle, would you say yes to it? Well, there's, they're a local band, so there's not going to be any money involved. And unless they're, if they're a local band, they're probably also not that good. So it's probably not that cool of a project. And if you don't know them, you can't really check the cool people box. And so I'd go, no, you shouldn't do that for free. On the other hand, if uh, Dan calls you up and asks you if you want to do a test mix for the next Black Veil record you for free, you better say yes, <laughs> because that's going to check all three of those boxes. You know, or even the test project, you know, it doesn't check the, the money box, but Dan's a great guy and it's a really cool project. So you should definitely say yes to doing that test mix for free. Uh, I did when uh, I did work for Zach Wild for free. I remember Blasco yeah. uh, a few years ago. There was uh, some sort of emergency with something that was going to ESPN. And uh, he just asked me if I could do it. And I said, yes. And money wasn't even a thing. I just wanted to do them a favor. And by the way, I'm, I'm pretty sure I did some stuff for, for you guys, for URM and Nail the Mix for free a long time ago, just because you guys are my friends. I think you said, you hey, did. would you mind helping with such whatever it was? I don't remember. And I said, yeah, sure, why not? Because it checked it checked two of those boxes, which is cool people and a cool project, because I think you know, URM is really cool and you guys are my friends. So yeah, I'm not worried about the money. Same with GGD, you know, Matt Halpern, they were doing some digital marketing stuff and he said, Hey, would you mind taking a look at this? Just, I want to see if we're doing it right. And I looked at it and I said, okay, you're definitely not doing it right. Let me fix it for you. (laughs) You know, and then that turned into working with them on a, you know, larger basis. So yeah, that, that's how I would encourage anybody to look at it. And in general, especially like if you're just starting out, like you're never going to get lucky unless you roll the dice and being like overly precious about your own worth is not going to get you anywhere. Like you should say yes to shit more often than you say should, than you say no to shit when you're starting out, you know, do be smart about it and, you know, don't say yes to any Yahoo that comes along. But on the other hand, like you never know, like, where a given project is going to take you. And in general, like, I think you're exposing yourself to more upside by saying yes, as opposed to saying no, and then patting yourself on the back for playing hardball, you know, what? Yeah, but you didn't get yourself anywhere. <laughs> you got me thinking about something, which I think is always hilarious. And Dan, you probably have noticed this too. Have you noticed that some of the people that play the the hardest hardball are local bands? When it comes to contracts, <laughs> right? You're, uh, we're not signing away our likeness rights. You're like, okay, fine. Like, we didn't really want them anyway. It's just like a boilerplate thing in the agreement. It's whenever I've done produ- production contracts, it's always the local bands that are the worst about it. And literally, the production contract is just we're going to. Uh, do this many songs in this length of time 
for this amount of money. <laughs> you know, I have something I want to say about contracts too. And again, I'd love to hear what you guys think about this, since you know at the level that you guys are operating at, um, contracts do matter. But here, here is my thought on contracts, which is uh, my my high level thought. There is a contract has never stopped an unethical person from being unethical. So if you think that because someone signed a contract saying that they would or would not do a thing, that that's like you know the silver cross that prevents the vampire from you know entering your house, you're kidding yourself. And vice versa, a good person is going to be a good person regardless of what it says in the contract. So I do think that you know you should be smart about that and you should most certainly use protection you know uh and make sure that you know the contracts are in place but on the other hand like don't play hardball and don't let one little line item in a contract scuttle a deal for you unless it's a really 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 important line item because you know think about it this way so let's say somebody does violate the contract what are you going to do about it are you going to sue them no so does it really matter? No. I do you, Dan, this was probably happened when Mercenary shared the office with Sumerian, but do you remember like two or three years ago when there was that battle for Sumerian winner who got, Oh yeah, I remember that. He got the contract. Yeah. And yeah, so and he went on and he made so for anyone who doesn't know this Dan, maybe you can tell the story better than I can, because you were probably actually there. Right. Um, so I guess uh, I start by saying, so Ash Avildsen, the founder of Sumerian Records, he's involved in many, many businesses within music. So he's able to do a lot with a band that's just starting out. One of the cool things he did to kind of give back and set up smaller bands for success was run a national uh, battle of the bands, which resulted in the finalists being flown out for a showcase for Sumerian Records executives and executives from, you know, every other, you know, uh, large label in metal music, managers, booking agents, publicists, attorneys, publishers, anyone you could think of, plus a built-in audience that follows Sumerian Records and their fans. And ultimately, the ultimate prize was a contract with Sumerian Records. So I don't remember all the details, but I do remember Sumerian ended up giving contracts to the five finalists because they thought all of them were excellent. And there was some controversy with one of the bands that didn't agree with so you know some of the lines in the contract and i believe they posted it online yeah which is super unprofessional it was a long video yeah so it's super not pro instead of dealing with you know the label directly and you know at least in, in my opinion kind of watching it unfold i, I did think it was super unprofessional but I, I'm going to tell these bands right now, some labels are better than others. <laughs> you know, Sumerian yeah. Records, um, I, I started my career with Sumerian and, you know, I shared office space with them for years. They break bands. And that's that's just the reality of it. You know, certain labels, if you're on them, you just have a much higher chance of becoming popular because people pay attention to them. You know, Sumerian is a trendsetter in metal today the same way that Epitaph Records was a trendsetter when I was getting into punk music. You know, you immediately pay attention to a band because they're on a certain label. 
So to me, I thought it was kind of petty. If I was in a, a metal band and, you know, Sumerian or Metal Blade or one of those types of labels came to me with a recording contract, I wouldn't fight too much on it. Here's like kind of a, another example of what I'm talking about is let's say that you're a producer and you know some and and you you get some local band to sign a contract saying they're going to pay you you know $500 or whatever for your work and then they don't pay you what are you going to do fax them the contract and say you're in breach of contract no <laughs> do you know what i mean like so my no, of my, course po- not. my of course you should have that stuff in place but my point is that it's a, kind of another thing of people i guess putting the cart before the horse and like worrying about things that at the end of the day don't matter and like if you are so concerned about you know a person screwing you that you want to fight tooth and nail over some line item on a contract then don't work with that person like if you trust them you know the contract is going to work you know if you trust them then you should work with them if you don't trust them then you should not work with them and no line item in a contract is going to turn an untrustworthy person into a trustworthy person that's i guess what i'm trying to say for me those contracts were not for the for in case i got stiff for 500 bucks they were for if i was doing some sort of a spec deal or a development sort of situation where if they got signed from the work the label wouldn't be able to ditch me without a buyout and so in and, that and how many times did they ditch you anyway never <laughs> so, i bet they did <laughs> never it, that's exactly that's exactly it it was just a backup plan but like if a band ditched me or something what am i going to do hire a lawyer right. for yeah. a few to try to recover maybe a few thousand dollars no of course not you know what i, I want to add something real quick if we're on the topic of like recording contracts you know musicians that have issues with whatever line items they need to keep in mind a record label is like a bank they're putting money into you and they expect a return on investment all these companies you know booking agencies managers publishers it's all they're all for-profit businesses, and they want to protect their investment. So if you're not willing to give up, let's say, you know, your likeness for some merch designs, then you need to, you should at least counter with maybe another revenue stream that they can tap into to make sure that they make that you know they're able to recoup on whatever money they spent on you. Plus, make some profit like everybody else wants to make, and you know I know I know these are kind of taboo things people don't want to talk about. You know, it's art; people shouldn't be making money off of it. But we all have bills to pay, we all have families to feed, and that's just the reality. If you're not ready to accept that reality, you're probably not ready to be signed, because it's going to suck when you start going on tour and you're looking at rate reductions. Is you know the promoter? You're not selling tickets, and the promoter doesn't want to you know lose his house over overpaying you. And again, going back to what we were talking about earlier, if you are so goddamn good at your craft, most of these things will just take care of themselves because you have something they need, which is you are a great producer or a great performer or something like that. And that is the answer to almost all of these problems. Is yes, you should be smart and you should certainly care about your business, but like. If you're really, really, really undeniably fucking awesome at what you do, these problems will mostly solve. Now, you know, a lot of these stories about um, the evil record labels and all that come from a whole different era, too. And 
we're not in any way, shape, or form encouraging people not to read contracts or get a lawyer or try to negotiate a better deal. What we're saying is don't be an idiot. Don't be an idiot about it. And don't don't negotiate. Uh, yeah, so I should be more clear. Don't negotiate as though you have a lot of leverage when you actually do not have any leverage. Yeah, exactly. We're not saying just take a deal where they own your name and likeness for the next 200 years and uh, you can't do anything in case the band breaks up and things like that. Uh, Obviously, you don't want to screw yourself over for life. And you hear about stories like that from dumb artists from the 80s who or something who signed over every single thing forever <laughs> and uh, you know then couldn't have a couldn't have a career once their band broke up and if you do want to pass on it that's fine too but do it respectfully just say hey we you know super appreciative of your interest in working with us i think there's just a little bit too much distance between what we think is a fair offer and what you think is a fair offer and you know, we're just going to move on, but we'd love to, you know, keep in touch and maybe work together someday and then just leave it at that. Yeah, totally. So, Dan, what do you think about producers getting managers? And and this is funny because uh, when I was a producer, Blasco managed me for a while. But, like, what, what's you, what are your thoughts on that? Because I think, me personally, I think it's almost almost unnecessary. But what do you think? Well, um, I guess before I jump into it, I should say, for those that don't know, uh, Blasco is my boss and uh, owner and founder of Mercenary Management. And we love him. Yeah, he's, he is super awesome. Very smart guy. <laughs> but, you know, I, I don't really think I'm fully qualified to say whether, you know, producers and mixers and whatever need management. Everybody has different needs. If you're operating on the level of, you know, uh, Bob Rock. Yeah, I'm sure he has somebody oh, managing yeah. his, it, you know, managing his career. But also, there's some people that could just do it themselves. That their mind just operates in that way. That they're able to, you know, handle both sides of, you know, the their career or whatever. So the, I, there's really no one right answer. I know that the people that do have. You know, a, a successful management career working with producers, they only, you know, work with producers. And, they're t- and you know, managers typically specialize in something. Myself, I specialize in social media marketing. Blasco specializes in branding and building businesses. So the ones that work, that manage producers, they typically specialize in, they either used to be a producer or they specialize in publishing or something more relevant to a producer. How many producers are there in the world of, you know, rock and metal who even need to ask themselves the question, should I have a manager? I, th- I think this is better, better answered by AL. Yeah? Very few. Yeah, exactly. So Very few. You, you don't need to answer that question is, is my take on that. Like, you know, it's like asking what kind of fuel should the space shuttle use? Be like, if you're one of the guys that is responsible for running the space shuttle, then you should worry about it. Otherwise, just leave it to them. Well, it's one of those things where it's, we just get asked that question a lot at the URM Academy, which is, should I look for a manager? Should I look for a manager? It's like, why? A manager... Do you think you should go out with Demi Lovato or Selena Gomez? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, It's like... First, a producer manager is not going to make your career. All they're going to do is uh, is help negotiate contracts for you. And if you're big, 
if you're Andrew Wade or Will Putney or something, and or bigger than those guys, then yes, maybe they can help get you gigs. But as a producer, you get gigs because an artist wants you. That's basically it. That's pretty much 90% of where your gigs are going to come from. And so if there's no demand among artists for your services, no manager is going to create that demand for you. The manager does not create your demand. They basically will make sure that the label pays you. And the number one reason that I know that producers get managers, and this is why I got Blasco too, and he did a great job for me with this. And uh, this is why, peop- why this is the reason is because most labels, not all, like Dan said earlier, different, not all labels are created equal in terms of their ability to break bands. Not all labels are created equal in their willingness um, to pay invoices. <laughs> yes, exactly. And uh, I got sick and fucking tired of getting paid three months after a record came out and so I hired Blasco and uh, that's the number one reason that I know that my producer friends get managers is because there's a five figure bill that you know they have $150 in their bank account yet someone owes them 25 grand and they're behind on their rent payments when they shouldn't be because the label won't pay them and that's why they get managers it's not because the manager is going to uh get them a gig because the, the gigs come through the artists or the labels. And and when you were when you were, you know, managed by Blasco, you were one of a handful of people working on the really elite like Billboard top 20 uh, you know, metal artists. And there's one there's what maybe I don't know, at most 20 people in the world that are, you know, in that circle, it's probably less than 20, it's probably more like 10. Yeah, and yeah, so I was working on lots of big records, and I got to a breaking point where I could no longer keep keep on bothering labels without totally ruining my relationships with them. So I reached a desperation point where it was like, okay, I need someone to take over, who someone who's bigger than me in the scene, who is more respected than me, who can just make a phone call and get me my fucking check. And, and, and it made sense from Blasco's perspective because there was enough money on the table that his percentage was worth his time. So if these were local bands that, you know, you're nagging over 750 bucks, Blasco would not do yeah. it. And all he had to do was make that phone call and presto, it's done. He didn't have to develop me or anything like that. I, I don't think he would have done it if he had to develop me. And, you know, and then, of course, I stopped producing bands because this is better. What I'm doing now is way better. But uh, I just want to point out for all of you guys who are listening, who are at the beginnings of your careers as producers, who are asking if you should get managers, don't, unless you're not getting paid or something. Or, yeah. I remember, like, when I was doing, like, graphic design, which is essentially, you know, it works the same way as music does, the same way as being a producer does, really. I remember, like, always working so hard on building these portfolio sites and sending out, you know, I'd print out these, like, elaborate portfolios and stuff and send them to people I'd have wanted to work with and stuff, and it, it never... Well, I shouldn't say it never worked out, but it it didn't work out for a long time, and I remember just being so frustrated by it. And looking back on it, it's because my work wasn't very good. And... Or it was just okay, I should say. It wasn't bad. It was it was just mediocre. 
And all that time that I spent sending out these portfolios and stuff like that, uh, and probably making myself look stupid in the process because I'm sending it to this like world-class agency and they're going, why is this like scrub sending us his average portfolio? Like and just throwing it in the trash. My time would have been much better spent just focusing and getting better at my craft. And, you know, when I did get better, then people started noticing and hitting me up and, you know, it kind of solved itself. So I want to be super clear that I by no means am, uh, am, am, I'm not saying that people, you know, should, you know, put self-promotion and that sort of thing like to the side and not care about it because you definitely have to care about it. But my point is like that you can't put it ahead of your craft. And I feel like that happens a lot. So how do you guys feel about some questions from the audience now? Because yeah, they submitted. Yeah, cool. Let's uh, let's finish this out with some audience questions then. All right. So here is the first one. And these were these were fra- these were asked to Dan. So Dan, you take them first. But me and Finn will jump in after you give your answer. Um, so here's one from David Zagardo, which is: What are the top three pitfalls of up and coming bands? <laughs> okay, you know I, I think we covered a lot of this already, but I would say the number one kind of pitfall that I see coming from bands, at least that are submitting to me, is they worry way too much about marketing and all this needless stuff when they should be, at least in my opinion, focused on creating something that's marketable. And that's, you know, creating a good song that's a high quality recording. And I, you know, I can't even tell you how many poor recordings I get. And it, it, it always strikes me as weird. They're like, hey, you know, Everything we've ever put out sounds awesome. Why are you sending me something that sounds like it was recorded in a toilet? <laughs> you know, and, and again, you know, I'm just, I'm just being I'm I'm being honest right now because I hope you know some of the listeners will be able to take some of this knowledge and use it. But yeah, the the number one pitfall is, at least in my experience, they worry way too much about marketing themselves as opposed to creating something that's marketable and of value. Let me add something to that. That's really really important. So I did a lot of studying on marketing, digital marketing over the past few years. And I know a lot of people who have too. And I've had a lot of success with my efforts because I focused on marketing something that people really wanted, like Nail the Mix. And whenever I used those, my knowledge of how to market on stuff that people didn't want, it didn't matter what tricks I used or anything. Yeah, so all the marketing knowledge in the world didn't mean shit if I didn't have something that that people actually wanted. So that, I feel like that's the exact same thing that you just said, which is create something people want first, then you can market it. Right, and then um, I think number two, I would I would say probably they don't invest in themselves, or at least not enough. And by investing in yourself, that's everything from you know maybe taking uh, guitar lessons or vocal lessons. You know, even professionals do this. It's something that you need. Performance lessons, getting into shape, you know, looking cool on stage, aesthetics matter, where if especially if you're in metal, you know, it's it's easy enough to put on a black t shirt and black jeans. But there there needs to be some some kind of dividing line between the band that people paid to see and the people in the audience. And I but it also go, comes in the form of if you're at that point where you need to market yourself. You know, invest in ads, invest in good equipment, in high quality recordings. Because again, going back to number one, 
it's a bad look when you send somebody of value a poor sounding recording. That's not the first impression you want to make of your band. And they don't invest in themselves. And three, they may just not have the talent. You know, sorry to say, but not everyone's destined to be a rock star and not everybody can write a, a hit song. I want to ask you something about uh, kind of that third point. You guys, and, and, and from what I understand, this is one of Blasco's big things. You guys work with bands in which there is clear, like, charismatic star power at play. Can you talk about the role that that plays? I mean, because that's something you're either born with or you're not. Can you talk about that a little bit? Correct. Um, so kind of the, the saying goes um, is that, you know, people say mercenary only manages rock stars. And what they mean by that is charisma and that kind of X factor star power plays such a significant role in the success of what you're doing. You know, someone like Zach Wilde or Andy Beersock from Blackfell Brides, they would have been successful at anything they wanted to do. If it's acting, modeling, you know, Zach sports, whatever, because they have that that drive and that on-camera personality that just makes people like them. And, you know, I, I, I can't fully explain it, but it's the same star factor that movie stars have and you know when they walk into a room you know that they're rock stars they command an audience's attention and i and actually the best example i want to use would be uh heidi and carla from the butcher babies who i used to work with even people that weren't familiar with the band or didn't like that band um whatever the case is when they took the stage everyone paid attention i, I mean i've been at festivals with them when i've I've seen people drop everything that they were doing, you know, drop their beers or cigarettes or whatever, stop mid-conversation to watch, you know, Heidi jumping 20 feet in the air. Um, your ability to command an audience is what's going to set you apart from the hundreds of other bands in your scene playing the exact same style of music and having the exact same stage banter and whatever. I guess that that's the best way I can put it. It's just that there's there is a star power quality, and that is a very defining factor in you know how far you'll take your career, um, assuming your band breaks. And I think it's that that it factor that everybody talks about. You just know it when you see it. And do you think that do you think that can be if a band doesn't have that? Is there anything that they can do to create it? Or what what are your thoughts on that? If you see a band that just doesn't have that, maybe they have some good songs and good production, and they're doing everything right, and you go, I'm not really seeing the rock star factor. What, what? How do you look at that? Um, I mean, yes and no. Um, I would think an example to use would be Spencer from Periphery. When he first joined Periphery, he was kind of like a quiet kid or whatever. But over the years, he's really grown into himself. And now you see Periphery and, you know, that dude looks like M. Shadows on stage. Yeah, um, yeah. So he's, he's really grown into it and built that confidence. And it shows in his performance. Uh, you know, some people certainly are born with it. Some people are just, you know, born really good looking or naturally funny or whatever. But others, you know, they invest in themselves. If you're not naturally charismatic, take some speaking lessons. Uh, do whatever you need to do. But if you're serious about this, then you will. You know, if uh, if a professional touring musician can take guitar lessons, 
then you know you certainly as a front man or a front woman shouldn't be opposed to taking you know maybe an improv class something to better yourself on stage absolutely and and then meet uh, sorry to cut you off and then you know with with press there's something called media coaching which is a whole separate thing but yeah the way you interact with press and then the way you interact with fans those are equally as important and those are all different types of charisma and personality traits and you need to develop all of it do your big artists do you actually have them do media coaching we haven't uh but we've also been very fortunate in that zach has been doing this almost all of his life yeah and so and so has andy you know yeah. um and th- those are two like my two star clients you know andy from blackville started out as a child actor and so he's been acting uh, at, at a very young age. So they were both really. Uh, yeah, I was I was specifically wondering about Andy because he's so good with the media, choosing his words. Yeah, he, he's very good in the media, and I was I was curious if he had had any training in that. Right. So it's not something that we've done, but um, we're certainly not opposed to it. And it is when you start performing at those higher levels where you're a Billboard top ten act. Um, if you're not naturally charismatic or you don't have acting experience or whatever, you're certainly t- getting media coaching. You know, your publicist is pulling you aside and they're telling you the proper way to interact with certain members of the press. And, you know, um, if if you've ever been to like APMAs or Golden Gods or whatever, and you're, you know, an artist is doing the red carpet, they need to knock out, you know, dozens of interviews in a very short period of time. So they need to be able to give a good interview very quickly and hit all the important points. And do that 10 times in a row. Yes. Without fucking any of them up. And say it in an interesting way. Yeah, something yeah. that's interesting enough to where it's going to make the magazine or it's going to make the website or whatever else. You know, nobody wants to end up on the cutting room floor. I have, I have a, a, a thought that's sort of related to this. The media training thing made me think of it is that speaking in particular about producers is so one of the things I've done a whole bunch of my career is presentations and pitches, whether that's like to, you know, my bosses at the company or to clients that we want to work with or something like that. And, you know, people have told me that I'm pretty good at them and I think I am. And the reason why is because I've pr- I practice those literally down to the word. I mean, I guess I don't do it as much anymore, but I used to. Like if we had a presentation coming up with one of our clients years ago, I would sit down in a room for like four hours with one of my you know friends that I worked with, and we would practice it. And he, he would interrupt me in the middle of a sentence and say, "No, no, no, I think you should say don't don't say they need this. Say we think it would be great if you did blah blah blah." Like we would rehearse this thing like down to the word, and I think that that is uh, this idea of like practicing your people skills. I think is something that I, I would love for producers to walk away from because that'll like I, I don't think that's talked about very often, but that will pay bigger dividends than almost anything else. And it is a learned skill. You know, some people are just naturally amazing at it, but uh, it is a learned skill that you can get better at through practice. No different than mixing. Yeah, I totally agree. Let's uh, let's move on to another question. So. Here's one from David, another one from David Zagardo, which is, in lieu of touring, is it possible to build a substantial fan base through internet marketing and advertising? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The, you know, the internet and social media are just so powerful. Um, I think, you know, I think Finn would probably be the best answer to this question, but I do want to rem- remind people that, again, Blackville Brides was 
huge, massively successful band before they before they ever went on their first tour. It was all through MySpace and YouTube videos. They built their career from the absolute ground up, you know, from the very bottom with almost no funding at all. But I'll, I'll let Finn jump in with the marketing segment. Well, I mean, I'm not an expert on breaking artists by any means. I don't, you know, that's, I, I was going to say the opposite. I would say, Dan, you're the expert on that, but. Well, I can, I can, let me just say Job for a Cowboy, Suicide Silence, Whitechapel. These are all bands that were big on social media. Periphery was a forum band. Yes, that's right. Long before they became touring acts. And then you see bands like Keith Marrow's band and Conquering Dystopia, for instance. That's that super group with like Alex Webster and uh, Alex Runiger, Keith Marrow. They were an internet thing before they ever became a touring thing. It's absolutely possible to do that, but don't don't forget uh, from the previous question, point number one, which is worry about making something marketable before marketing. And also, they didn't they didn't you know punish people like with unsolicited emails and Facebook messages and shit like that to build that following. They just used the internet as a way of surfacing the thing that they were doing, which was great. I mean, Suicide Silence is a fucking great band, and Job for a Cowboy when they came out were like totally fresh and new and so what the internet did was just allow people to discover them it didn't you know to your point before it didn't create demand for them it just sort of allowed people to discover this thing that was awesome so you know when uh, you know I, I think we would all agree that it's totally possible to build up a huge uh online fan base but just you know don't be a punisher online just the same as you wouldn't be in person and then the other thing that i would add there and dan i know you've seen this too there's there's one particular example of this that i that just like really blew me away was back in 2009 on warp tour millionaires played that year and at that time and i think maybe they still do have like a huge online following but especially back then like they were they just were gigantic online and yet when they played Warp Tour, there were maybe like 35 kids there or something that actually showed up to see them. And I saw the same thing happen with a few other bands. And so the, the thing I would caution there is don't necessarily think that an online following will translate into anything other than an online following. It might, and it will, like, or it can, just like some of the examples we've talked about. But there's also examples of bands that are only popular on the internet and, you know, completely fail uh, in any other context. Yeah. So, all right, next question. And here's one from Jonathan Grubb. Grubb. Sorry, dude. I don't know how to pronounce your name. Forgive me. What are the top three things that would make you drop an act from managing? And have you ever reached out to some newbies that you thought had potential if you were to manage them? That is an excellent question. And the answers are probably not what, what they would expect, but... Probably the number one reason I part ways with bands would be I just don't have the time. You know, uh, we kind of pride ourselves in being able to focus all of our energy and all of our best ideas into, you know, our artists. And everybody wants to feel like they're getting the most out of the relationship. So, you know, unfortunately, there's only so much time in the day. And a lot of times I just, I, uh, we're just not able to devote the required amount of attention to all these artists. So if our roster gets too big and we're unable to devote the time needed, you know, we'll part ways with the artists. So, you know, obviously we'll part ways amicably, 
Um, but we're not going to go into we're not going to let them suffer because we want to make a buck dishonestly. I guess that would be the best way to put it. So yeah, number one reason, uh, I just don't have the time for it. Number two reason to, we've dropped an act, uh, I would think probably we've gone as far as we can go with that artist, whether we've taken them to our limit and they need to upgrade or our ideas just aren't working and maybe they need to go to a smaller management company where they can be looked at with more focus or maybe go to a different manager with a different specialty. Um, because like I said, you know, every manager's got their own specialized thing. So yeah, I would think that that'd be the second one. You know, just, uh, it was that time we, we, we've reached our limit and there's not much else you can do. And you know, most, most bands don't want to plateau. They want to continue to grow. And then, the third one, honestly, bands break up. So there's there's no need to manage a band's estate or a band that's not active or you know they're on an extended hiatus. Um, we'd rather just clear the roster and make room for either a developing act that has potential or just reinvest that energy into our existing acts. And this is something that's happened recently where we've parted ways with a big chunk of our roster because we knew that we needed to continue focusing on the acts that have been with us for, you know, seven, eight years versus, you know, the, the acts that have been with us for just a couple years, they would be better off wor- uh, working somewhere else. Fair enough. So, hey, Dan, do you have a little while to keep answering some questions? Because Finn has got to take off. But if you still have time, we'd love to keep going. So... Finn, thank you so much for being a part of this. Thanks for having me. Always uh, great to talk with either of you guys. Uh, I would highly recommend that uh, anybody who's in any aspect of the music business follow Dan uh, on all the social media and pay close attention to what he has to say. Very, very smart man. Uh, so you you made a good call by having him on. Uh, so I will hop off and uh, uh, look forward to hearing the rest of your words of wisdom, Dan. Thanks for being here, dude. I'll see you. Bye. Now it's just you and me, baby. (laughs) So I want to uh, key in on something that you just said about about sometimes downgrading to a smaller to smaller management. And in my experience, and remember, like I got signed to Roadrunner out the gate, and was with the agency group and. Then went to Century Agency Group as a uh, booking agent. I've been with Century Media and got booked by Finberg also and had Dan Rosenberg for a while and various different managers and have done it all. He had a, a solo record on Magna Carta Records and and in my production career have, you know, was ma- managed by Blasco, but also worked with Jason Sukoff and Mark Lewis, who were uh, managed by Laura Richardson when she was alive. And then they moved to Good Fight. And so I've kind of been through it all at this point, have had various publicists from the amazing George Valley to the now defunct Fresno Media. Now we're, we're with Maria Ferrero. And uh, I've been around the block at this point, And I can tell you, and I can tell everyone that it's not about the size of the manager or the agent or label. It's about how much they care about you. 
I mean, within reason, of course. You you can't go with a local yokel who has no reach and think that they're going to do big things for you just because they care. But once you're in the big leagues, you don't need to be at the A-plus level to get A-plus results. What you need is someone who's who believes in you, who's going to prioritize you. And if you go with an A-plus level manager or label or something, and you're at the bottom of their roster, that's arguably way worse than being at a B-level management firm, but being at the top of their roster. Yeah, I mean, what what you said is absolutely accurate. You know, what... I don't want to say so much my company, but yeah, even, even at Mercenary Management, you know, your results are going to need to compete with the results of Zach Wilde and Black Label Society and, you know, Black Veil Brides and Goat Whore and these well-established bands. And, you know, and... Any of the management companies that are even above us, you still need to compete with their top shelf clients because you're competing for the management company's time and you know and their resources. But when I say downgrade, it doesn't mean downgrade in the level of ability, but maybe you're a mid-level band that's catching a lot of momentum and you need to be somebody's priority client. And actually, a really good example, you brought up my good friend, George Valley. Love you, George. Yes. I hope he's listening. He's one of the best publicists um, I've ever worked with, hands down, one of the best in metal and rock and roll. But he's also a manager. And you know, he doesn't roll with some huge, massive management company. He doesn't have some you know, jaw-dropping roster. But he does provide a very valuable service in that... He kicks ass at what he does. He's able to plug you in with all the right people. And since he's also a publicist, you have that skill that you would normally pay thousands of dollars for that your management is taking care of. So while that may be a step down from, let's say, you know, Slipknot's management or whatever, it could be the very move that breaks your band or is exactly where that band needs to be. Because, you know, like I said earlier, every band has different needs. And some people are just better cut out for those needs than others. Yeah, and if you got with Slipknot's management, they're going to balance you with Slipknot, and I wouldn't want to be in that position. Yeah, it's you know it's tough, and just because you're rolling with a certain manager, like just, uh, just because you're with Mercenary Management doesn't guarantee you a Black Label Society tour. You know, just because you're managed by someone that plays in Ozzy Osbourne doesn't guarantee you the opening slot on a Black Sabbath tour. You need to weigh your needs with their talents, with the talent of the management company. Yeah, great answer. Okay, so here's one from Jacob Turkle, which is, considering that the best way to spread your music is to, one, have awesome music, and then, two, let it spread via social media's power of word of mouth because people like it, what's the best way to get it going? I often plan ahead of time, email hundreds of reviewers, magazines, and Facebook pages, but I run out of options as soon as I do that, and I feel like I could do a whole lot more. Let's say you have enough visual content in top quality. What are the most effective ways to approach a potential fan base? <laughs> um, you know what? I honestly think uh, you're, they're taking the wrong approach. This goes back to creating something marketable instead of trying to market yourself. Finn has a great saying, which is, do newsworthy shit. <laughs> it's true. It's absolutely true. 
Um, if you're in that position where you need to hunt down, you know, reviewers and press, uh, you probably shouldn't be wasting your time with it. Uh, and you know, that's that's just my opinion. I'm sure somewhere there's you know a blogger that's trying to blacklist me right now. But <laughs> I've I've dealt with plenty of bands that no press ever wanted to cover, and they are very successful. Blackville Brides and Butcher Babies being excellent examples of people nobody wanted to cover for years and years. Forget about all that. You need to focus, if you already have an awesome song, then you need to focus on making an equally awesome music video for it. If you're spending money on a publicist to get reviewers and you know whatever press, forget about that. Put it into a Facebook ad campaign. Do something where it benefits you. When you need to go, when you get a feature, even if it's something as awesome and whatever, a review in AP Magazine or a premiere in AP or Revolver, yeah, that's awesome. It does cool things for your ego, but it's not really going to help your band because those websites are going to, you know, they need your clicks. They need you to send traffic to them. And if you're not doing it or you don't hit, you know what they project or what they need. You're just burning a bridge with somebody that could be a close ally later on. You know, and with reviewers, most reviewers, at least the ones that are going to review an up-and-coming no-name band, they're probably not tastemakers or influencers. And I'm sorry to say that, but it's true though. Anyone that's ran a website would know that those get the fewest clicks and the fewest eyeballs. And you know, no, nobody really pays attention to it. Sorry, bloggers. But yeah, to go back to it, reinvest it into some, that time and energy and money into something that directly benefits you. A Facebook ad campaign goes a very, very long way. A great music video goes a very long way. Whatever else, if your music's awesome and you've kind of ran out of options, make more music. If you're getting, if you're kind of getting to that level where serious press is starting to poke around, because I know a lot of these bigger websites like Metal Sucks and Metal Injection do cover unsigned bands. At that point, maybe it is time to start looking into a publicist or a PR person, or at least have somebody to help you build the story and to build that relationship with these press outlets. But you know, if you're really going out there and spending this much time emailing them, whatever, you're probably doing the wrong thing. Absolutely. Here's one from Sean Duddy, which is... After you get signed and are on a small label, how should a band's priorities shift, and what's the best way to take the momentum of added team members and run with it? Well, you know, it, I guess it depends on what you would qualify as a small record label. You know, like most people would think, Metal Blade is a big label, but it's small compared to Roadrunner, and then Roadrunner is small compared to Republic, or, you know, whatever. So it, it depends on how you define it, but how to carry that momentum, it depends on what momentum you have. That, that could be from, let's say you have a song that's crushing it on Spotify and you're getting you know hundreds of thousands of listens a week, you know, you'll probably want to get with, you know, let's say a booking agent and you'll, at least what, how I imagine that scenario going is if I had that, I would get the analytics, see what cities and states those streams are coming from and if there's a way to route a tour around it, or if there's already an existing tour, going through that area, maybe either buy on or come in as a support band. But with a record label, they have marketing departments. They have people whose job it is to structure something around your band, to get, to capture that momentum and keep gaining it. 
because you know it's it's different with every with every band and every scenario and every record label you know there's certain record labels that don't focus on any of that but they kill it at you know regular radio and their entire marketing plan focuses on taking your single to active rock others don't pay attention to radio at all and they just have a heavy focus on music videos and the visual uh the visual component of it and there's no wrong answer there but yeah that's something you need to really work with your team on and hopefully if you know you have the right team members they'll be able to build you up and capture that momentum that you have going all right here's one from liam Knott, which is any recommendations of what artists should be doing before they contact labels or what will attract the interest of labels yeah i mean uh <laughs> record labels want hype and they want sales they want a band that people are excited about and they want those people to be excited enough to buy a CD and a T-shirt. But yeah, if you you know if your heart is set on submitting to a record label, please just submit the highest quality recording. That's really all it comes down to. All the business stuff is nice, and if you can submit tour finals or show finals, merch sales, and you know streams, that's great. But don't be that band that sends a horrible recording to a record label. That is literally what the record label does: is they sell music. <laughs> so it, it, it needs to appeal to them. But yeah, you know, when I was at Sumerian Records, and you know, we would have these A and R meetings, we would always talk about, you know, uh, whatever up and coming up and coming band we were listening to, you know. What's the hype on the street? Are people talking about them? Well, if people are talking about them, then there's something there. If no one's talking about you, then you're going to have a much harder sell to that record label. Here's another question, and I'm actually curious about this, which is how did you get into this line of work? Like, how did this even happen? Well, I like telling this story um, because my career before this was in banking. Banking? Yes. Uh, What? I went to college for finance, dropped out, got into retail banking, and... Ended up as a bank manager and then a private banking financial advisor working on like investment portfolios for millionaires or whatever. But around 2007, we had the financial collapse. <laughs> Banks started laying everyone off. So, you know, my branch closed down and I was t- faced with a very tough decision. So you picked the music industry. That's <laughs> smart. <laughs> kind of. It's, it started out with... um. I very loosely knew Blasco because he managed, he used to manage a hardcore band that I was friends with. And I saw a posting for, you know, new management company needs an intern that's familiar with punk rock. And so I'm sitting there thinking, well, I'm unemployed. I need something to fill up my time while I look for a new banking job. So I'm going to do this and listen to punk music. Um, so, you know, <laughs> I, I, I email him and we hit it off. And it turned out to be really fun. My first uh, assignment as an intern, as a, you know, I think I was like 24 at the time, uh, as an intern was working the MySpace account for a punk band called The Casualties, which actually I'd grown up listening to them and I'm a huge fan of punk rock. Um, but little by little, I started opening up revenue streams at first for The Casualties, then for other bands we were working with. And really carved out a salary for myself. So by the time it hit uh, around the one year mark, when you know banks were back on their feet and they were starting to hire again, I had another decision to make, which is: Do I want to try to make music into a career, or do I want to go back into banking? 
you know, and I don't know if I made the right decision, but I chose to go with music and, you know, I, I was able to kind of show Blasco my results of, hey, I opened up this revenue stream, this revenue stream, this revenue stream. If we put it together, this is how much the company makes and we can carve out this budget to pay me. Because up until the one year point or so, I was not collecting any money. Like, I, I, I tried to do some freelance stuff here and there, but I had no experience, so nobody was going to pay me for it. So that was something I really had to invest in myself. Unfortunately, I had savings from my banking job to be able to live off of. Smart man. Hey, all of you guys who are listening who want to take plunge from having your day jobs to being full-time audio producer guys, take note of what Dan did. He had savings. <laughs> well, yes, that's a, that's a very important because even for the first couple years or even longer than that, in music, the paychecks weren't really enough to make a living off of, uh, you know, like you're getting paid, but it's tough to survive and it's a very competitive field and there's always going to be somebody younger willing to work for less. If you really want to break through, my single best advice is find revenue streams, find ways to make your company money and, car- and from that money that you generate, carve out a budget that is going to be able to pay you. You're going to turn yourself into a sustainable business. That's that's such a great answer, man. And it's really, really, really relevant because I guarantee you that thousands of our listeners are wondering how the hell they're going to quit their day jobs and make this happen. Well, yeah, it, it, it's not something that happens overnight. You're going to just slowly start to build up your credibility and the amount of money you can ask for or get paid. You know, it took me, I, I've been in this almost 10 years. It took me years and years before I was able to really do one job, which is just management. You know, for years I was working at Samaritan Records and Mercenary Management and a booking agency called the Pantheon Agency. And I had all these side gigs within music. Like, you know, it was all under the music umbrella, but they were all different jobs. And that's what I needed to pay rent. And, you know, that's kind of what most people end up doing while they're starting out. That's the only way to get that experience and to make those connections to where you can ask for larger sums of money. So like as a producer, that could mean you do live sound two nights a week at a club and then you edit drums for someone that's bigger than you one day a week or two days a week and maybe you intern for free at another studio and clean their toilets and bring them coffee and then at nights you record your buddies or some local bands and then you do all these different things and over time increase your value and your reputation until you get a break or you know you just start getting better bands organically it's the same idea that's exactly it you know it's a, it's a tough business and not everyone's cut out for it but those those that work hard and really really want it they'll figure it out they'll figure out some way to make it work yeah totally Here's one from Tyler Rodriguez, which is, so Band A wants to make it big. So far, they're only playing small local shows around their area. What should they be focusing on and striving for? Selling out those local shows. It's, it's way too early at that point to think about breaking it big and doing big things. Your goal should be to sell out uh, your local shows with regularity. And then once you sell out local shows, start playing shows, you know, 10, 20, 30 freeway exits away and sell those out too. You still have a long way to go. Oh yeah. It's it's funny. My band never played local shows before we got signed. But uh, we, well, because the Atlanta scene sucked and they were mean to us. 
Like, we didn't get it. There was too much infighting in the scene. We didn't want to be a part of it. But we focused on playing shows all over the region and building a fan base that way. But but what you could do in 2005 is different than now. Right. You know, actually, um, we had an interesting scenario. We, we used to manage a band called In This Moment. I already know them. Yes. And so Blasco found them on MySpace. And uh, the guitarist, Chris, had this great thing going, um, which we later, you know, discovered is called the leapfrog technique. But maybe this is something that can help the listeners. What he did was he would, he's Los Angeles based. So he would connect with other bands, you know, maybe in Arizona and Vegas and Bakersfield, San Diego, whatever. And, you know, he would say, hey, you know, in Los Angeles, we're worth a hundred tickets on our own any given night of the week. We see you're about the same in your town. How about we drive out to Las Vegas, play a show opening for you, and then you come out to L.A. and play a show opening for us? And, I mean, it worked out great. They Smart. They were doing their own little West Coast mini tours, you know, selling a couple hundred tickets a night, even, you know, even during the weeknights, before they had any label or management interest. And, you know, granted, this was a long time ago, but I think you could still do it. And it was a very smart idea. And so, you know, if for the person asked the question, if they feel they've played out the local scene, you know, talk to a band 50 miles away. If you're worth tickets and they're worth tickets, trade off, do something cool. There's a lot of really great bands out there. That, that's a smart idea. And Chris, in, in this moment, are a smart band. I know that there's plenty of times when people thought that they were finished, where they just reinvented themselves and got even bigger. And uh, it's... I mean, I thought they were finished too. So I think everybody did, except for them. And they, uh, you know, just goes to show smart people in that band. Here's one from Jonathan Linton, which is, what should a band prepare to send inquiries to record labels as a general rule? That's a weirdly worded question, but I think I understand what he's asking. I'll read it again. What should a band prepare to send inquiries to record labels as a general rule? You know, so it's the same thing. How about a record label only cares about, not only cares, but their main priority is to sell music. So you need to have good music. And I don't think you, you don't need to send them a 10-track demo CD, you know that. Take your single best song, make sure it's of the highest quality, and, you know, email it over to them or submit it however they prefer it submitted. I know with Sumerian Records, we also really like getting tour finals and whatever numbers we can get so we can get a better snapshot of the band. If you have good-looking promo photos, that helps. But it needs to be good-looking. Don't <laughs> don't send that something where, you know, you're wearing, like, plaid shorts and you look like a doofus unless that's the, that's your actual look, you know. You, you want to present yourself the same way you'd present yourself on stage. Well, let me just add that really bad band photos and things like that are something that gets shared in the industry. It's like, <laughs> look at those guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, a, that, that's kind of unfortunately true. Um, <laughs> I, I, I've had some really bad ones mailed to us. But you know what? I, I want to talk on a positive note. I've gotten <laughs> some really great ones, too. I don't know, I don't know if, I, if I'm allowed to mention the band by name or not, so I won't. But I've had quite a few make these really intricate, um, like, EPKs that were just tailor-made for Sumerian Records or for Mercenary Management. And they would, you know, they would mail it to us, which I thought it was a little weird. 
But, you know, they would connect with me first and ask for the address and whatever. And it would come with, like, a handwritten letter by the band. Like, you know, Dan, we we see you manage these bands. We really love what you do. And this is our band. This is about us. This is why we think we would be a good fit for your roster. Here's reviews from guys you manage that also agree with us. And, you know, there was quotes from bands that I work with that, you know, played shows with these guys or they worked with them, you know, to, uh, what, building them up. And then they included flyers and posters from past shows and all these things to what, I mean, the band just couldn't be ignored. And the music was great as well. But the band just couldn't be ignored. And it wasn't just some random email that they shot off. They really thought about this and they really weighed their options and looked at, you know, which company would be best for them, which record label would be best. And, you know, they did their homework and it was very impressive. And when we got one like that for Sumerian Records, it went straight to Ash Avildsen's desk. You know, he's he was the person that called the band. It wasn't somebody in the A&R department. It was the head of the fucking company. Uh, sorry, I don't know if I'm watching. Oh, yeah. You can fucking say whatever you goddamn want. Awesome. So, yeah, something like that went straight up to the very top and you know they got a personal call from the head of the record label and that band that sent me the letter from our same management i called them myself it wasn't an ignore it wasn't an instant message or an email it was direct contact and sometimes it works out sometimes it doesn't but you always want to present yourself in the best possible way. And those were two very great stories of bands that went above and beyond. And I really have to say, uh, getting quotes from people we already work with, from artists that we already work with or manage, goes a long way. That is so smart. They're vouching for you. And, you know, that uh, they, they know. You know, they, they know what it takes. They're doing it. That's so smart on so many levels. Because one of the best ways to get a door open for you in the industry is to be vouched for by somebody else. I mean, that is, in my opinion, the best way, besides just having huge sales behind you, which that is, you know, something has to vouch for you. And if you don't have sales, you need a person to vouch for you. And nothing like having people who are already making money for a manager or a label vouching for you, right? This is so smart. And now, of course, I'm glad you said that Sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. Just because a door is opened doesn't guarantee you that you're going to get the deal or the management relationship or whatever. But if you're already getting direct contact from the head of the label, you know, that's better than most people. You're doing something right, you know? It's a lot, you know, like, it's the same thing like when you see the show Shark Tank and people get a deal on the show. You know, in reality, then afterwards, the shark has to do their due diligence and then there's an actual contract that gets worked out and sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. Um, But the point is that they got in the door and uh, you have to get in the door before anything can work out. So uh, those people are smart. Here's from one from Dmitry Yablonsky, which is, who do you think is, was the most successful artist you have managed and why? And in your opinion, what is the single factor that determines one's success in music, excuse me, in music business? Oh, I mean, easily it would be Zach Wilde. The, the guy's been an icon for 30 plus years. He's got his hand in everything, and I mean, he just he has such an impressive resume. He he has the career and 
career longevity that rock stars dream of. And, I, you know, I don't, I don't know if there's much else that needs to be said. I don't know. He, I mean, Zach Wilde, enough said. Yeah. It, you know, doing three, four uh, decades in the business and still lasting, you know, to have, only a handful of bands can say that. Not just lasting, but thriving. Yeah, good point. Yes, correct. Yeah, he's not just, like, doing the old fogies tour or anything. He's fucking current. He's selling out arenas. Yeah, he's still doing and cool shit and new products and, like, he's in the game. and It's incredible. And, and I remember... I mean, he came out when I was still a kid. I, I caught, I I first keyed into him on like No More Tears, but like he's just been like God level since I was a preteen. It was ridiculous. I mean, I'm trying to think who else. I can't think of anyone else who's really done that. I can think of lots of guys who were incredible back in the day and have kept their careers going. But I can't think of anybody else who was, like, incredible back in the day and has remained cool this whole time and has done this sort of thing. Yeah, he's done a great job of avoiding that kind of, oh, that guy's older, it's, you know, dad rock kind of mentality. Um, And, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that, but he's an old school guy that has plenty of young, like, teenage and college age fans he keeps he keeps it fresh and you know whatever that's a that's how i would measure his success he's lasted this long and it's still cool like zach wilde is still a very cool name in any corner of rock and roll yeah it's impressive so here's one from david zagardo which is ep or album first or single single followed by a good music video um, there's a, you know, going back to what I said a few minutes ago, there's no need to put out 10 mediocre tracks, put out one really awesome, memorable track, follow it up with a music video, uh, a good music video and follow that path. It's a, it's a lot easier to create one, you know, really mint song than it is to create 10 or 12. And just think from a production perspective, you know, those of you guys who are not getting that much money per song and are doing full albums for like a thousand dollars, crazy cheap, like it's better to try to convince an artist to spend that thousand dollars on one song and put all all your eggs in that basket and make it as good as it possibly can be because the power of one really well done song is infinitely higher than a shitty album all you need is one great song to break you and like dan said you can go from there so whenever i get approached by bands who have like a couple thousand dollars that this was when i was producing and they want to do an album i'd say well first of all i'm not going to do an album for that cheap but if you have a couple thousand dollars why don't we do one song all the way like everything like i'll pre-pro it with you i'll help you rewrite it like we'll do everything we'll make it fucking incredible and uh that will get you so much for or say they only had like five grand and wanted to do a full record or something i'd be like let's just do a short ep let's make it an incredible ep though and let's not waste our time with 12 songs let's make this as good as we can possibly make it invest your money wisely yes you can go down the street to your buddy who will do your full the full album for a grand or something but no one's gonna care 
you're going to be throwing that money. You may as well roll a joint with it and smoke it because you're probably going to get more out of it that way. Right. Yeah. You know, you always want to present yourself and your art in the best possible way. And, you know, a lot of times that means not recording 10, 12 songs, but only recording one or a handful and making sure they really rule. Um, So, yeah, I I would say if you're just starting out, do a single and then take the rest of that money and put it into a music video. And, you know, see, YouTube will tell you whether you're doing a good job or not. Yes, they will. And uh, as a producer, it's, you know, if you want to have a successful career, you need a band to break. I mean, you can have a successful career with bands that don't break if you become the local guy. But if you, I'm saying, if you want a career like, like the kind that, the people you hear on this podcast have had, for instance, or who do nail the mix. Like, if you want a career with known bands, then obviously you need a band to break. And you're more likely to have a band break if you put out higher quality music. So it's kind of your job to uh, convince the artists of that if they don't already know it. And you can always count on the artists to already know that. So basically, the same advice that Dan is giving to artists, you need to give to the artists. Here's a question from Tyler Rodriguez, which is, with the rise of more and more people wanting to become musicians, forming bands and solo artists, have you noticed also an increase in talent or is the number of signable talent still relatively small? Hmm. Well, I think uh, talent is kind of subjective. You know, musicians are entertainers. So if the listener or the audience member is entertained, then, the you know, I, the opinion is that the performer is talented. If you're not entertained, then the performer is a talentless hack. <laughs> so you know, it, 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 it's on you to define what talent is. But in my experience and in my opinion, I haven't seen much of a change in talent, the numbers of talented people. What I have seen is people that were able to put together a song that people liked and a concept that people liked, and they were able to distribute it and reach a far greater audience than they ever were. So it's, you know, it's definitely moving forward. It's just not talent versus untalented. It's Right now, I think it's more of smart and clever versus you know maybe lazy or complacent. Great. Well, Dan, I'm going to end the podcast now. I want to thank you so much for uh, coming on and spending all this time talking with us. We went long, but I, lo- I like it that way. I, I love doing these long podcasts. Um, uh, I know that there's different formats out there, and some are like 20 minutes or whatever, but I love doing these where you can really, really get into it. And uh, I thank you for taking the time, and would love to have you on again in the future. Yeah, man. Well, have a great Friday, and we'll uh, talk again soon. Thanks, man. Bye. This episode of the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Joey Sturge's Tones, creating unique audio tools for musicians and producers everywhere. Unleash your creativity with Joey Sturge's Tones. Visit joeysturgestones.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe today.